I have to uh, confess it's quite a daunting thing to speak to all of you, <laughs> to see your faces. <laughs> However, someone, uh, <clears throat> it's quite a, a lovely way of communicating through the notice board, little notes. Someone put a note saying, uh, asking the question, what is compassion? <laughs> An explanation of compassion, which is actually a good question. But I felt at this point in the retreat we're more with the passion than the compassion. So <laughs> I think uh, perhaps if I may uh, go into that later, or we'll go into that later, as it uh, hopefully, anyway, as the retreat unfolds, we can touch on that uh, more, as it is obviously a very big part of uh, the teachings is considered something that we can consciously develop. It can spontaneously arise. It does spontaneously arise. It's often more an energy that has a, a feeling, if you like, that's mixed, resonates with the suffering. It's the sort of feeling I was just thinking when I feel compassion. It's maybe the feeling um like I might get if I go and see my granny. She's 90, female dementia in her home. There's a feeling of love for my granny, but there's also the pain of the situation. It's the feeling that I had when I saw a pigeon, a bird that had been smashed in the traffic of a town by a zebra crossing and it was laying there still, its body, little body smashed but still alive, gasping for air. I jumped out the car and picked it up and it died in my hand. Somehow the fragility of life, someone, uh, a being's life, moves one, moved me, a feeling of uh, compassion. Or the feeling uh, I remember sitting once opposite a young man in a train as he was going off uh, to war, to the Falklands War, and just looking at this youth, the innocence in a way, naivety, knowing that uh, being crunched up in the war machine, this feeling of pain, compassion, or the feeling of contemplating the cows or the calves going to slaughter through the madness of the politicians of Europe, <laughs> the madness of the way we live seeing the innocence of that, those beings in a way, caught up. There's many different, if I was thinking tonight, if I was going to leave this earth, I think one of the predominant feelings, besides maybe some anxiety, (laughs) maybe uh, sadness, but I think one of the predominant feelings would be a feeling of love or compassion, the sadness mixed with the beauty Maybe all of these things that move us in life uh, deeply, and often it comes in unexpected ways. Uh, maybe we're, we're, as we calm, quiet, perhaps that movement uh, touches us more, more and more unexpectedly. But uh, also later in the retreat, it'd be nice to touch on ways that we can contemplate, develop, and cultivate that feeling. Because as I mentioned. Earlier in the retreat, it is one of the most powerful forces to motivate our practice. 
to help us keep us motivated is the contemplation of that within us which resonates with the whole, which appreciates the whole, which suffers with the whole. And I think if we feel that this path of, of meditation or path of practice will somehow remove us from feeling life, then we might have a, a wrong expectation or a distorted expectation that somehow, yes, we are working towards freeing ourselves from unnecessary dukkha and suffering, the suffering we create unnecessarily in our lives. But that doesn't mean to say we're not going to feel pain, that somehow our heart will become wooden and we won't have to feel any more pain ever again. <laughs> We'll just be cool and calm and wise and reflective and have the right things to say at the right moment. We will never feel confused. We won't be knocked off balance. We won't be hurt. Uh, I think that's uh, unrealistic. In fact, in some ways, my experience has been that one actually becomes more sensitive to pain. Hopefully not more overwhelmed and completely lost in it, (laughs) but somehow more sensitive And that's important to allow ourselves to be open, to find a way, even though sometimes it isn't easy to keep the heart safe, open and sensitive. This is really uh, perhaps the moving, we've been talking about this quite delicate dance or subtle dance between the samatha, the calming, the focusing, the holding of attention to an object, moving with that into the vipassana and allowing the seeing, the noticing um, of mind, of emotion, of states, of the appearance, of the of the flow of mind, the flow of consciousness, and beginning to notice that, not using just the samadhi to somehow block the flow of mind, the flow of emotion, the flow of feeling out of um, out of the heart, somehow, sometimes we can use samadhi practices in that way. Uh, Ajahn Chah used to say it's a bit like getting a stone. We can use the, the concentrated mind, it's like putting a stone onto grass. And for a while we think there's no uh, grass growing underneath because we've, we've put the stone on top of the grass. And he said it's a bit like that with the with the, the mind, with the, the uh, processes of mind, if you like, or the, the hindrances within the mind. You, you get the smile, you put the stone on, you think they've all gone for a while, you're peaceful and calm, everything's still and tranquil. But then the conditions arise, the stone is knocked away, or we walk out of our peaceful retreat into a, our relationships at work. <laughs> and then within about three seconds, we're overwhelmed with confusion and frustration and irritation and we find that that was a temporary solution. It's not really, uh, it's like the the stone's knocked away and the grass just grows again. When the sun and the rain is there, whoop, there it is. So this is a very, the wisdom practice is actually allowing ourselves to just um, be with with mind, with the different feelings, so that there's a sort of, in a way, a purification that happens through consciousness, through consciously acknowledging, accepting uh, the states of emotion and, and the states of mind as they arise, the states of desire and aversion. 
No, but the difference is with samadhi is that there's a, perhaps a different way of relating or, or a relationship that's mixed with some attention. One's just not reacting blindly. There's a, there's a tension, there's a, a training to steady in the midst of being with a flow of mind. There's a training of steadying, um, steadying the attention and connecting with attention to maybe the sadness, the fear, the passions, the loves, the hates. So that relationship allows more of a reflective capacity to operate. And it's the reflective capacity of mind that, that uh, brings about a wise understanding or contemplation, contemplating in a wise way our human condition rather than reacting blindly to some of these experiences. The container... This is quite important really because as we in a way open our practice more we can't always guarantee what we're going to experience. We can't guarantee anyway what we're going to experience. We can't really guarantee what's going to come up for us. So we, we take refuge. Pia was talking about last night in the, in the Buddha, the one that's the knowing, the awareness itself. But we also have a sense of refuge in the container that we consciously um, have. And that container is the feeler that even if harmful states arise, even harmful impulses, like I'd like to murder every one of you if I feel uh, violence or frustration when I'm queuing up and so suddenly I feel overwhelmed with a desire just to obliterate everyone in front of me in a queue so I can get to... I mean, those feelings do arise <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> but the difference... In our relationship, I mean, perhaps if we're not mindful, we just suppress it. So I shouldn't. I'm so spiritual. I can't possibly have those kind of thoughts. You know, you know I'm, I'm quite. I'll go to the back of the line and I'll just wait for everyone else to go first, and I'll do all their dishes for them. Yeah. <laughs> we can think like that. That's one way of working with it. Pretend we never had that naughty thought anyway, or we can dwell on it and uh, go and get our AK-47 out for the next meal time. <laughs> Uh, that's cool. We can't really do that. <laughs> so we have these ways that we can relate to that kind of a thought form that, that might arise in any given moment. Um, we can obsess around it, we can suppress it, we can judge it. But we, we can trust, we have a feeler. We've taken the precept here of not to consciously harm any living being, uh, <laughs> even if we feel that impulse. We can know our deeper intention is not to harm. The mind might um, have a harmful impulse, but we know that our intention is very clear, not to harm. So this is like our container, the sealer, if you like. This is why it's so important, why it's considered such a foundation, as that goes deeper into our life. It acts as a sort of, a, if you like, a, a container is probably the better, best word. It's something we can trust. It's something that holds us. It's something that protects us, really. And that carries us, so we trust that. And then we can this, we can allow this purification, this vipassana then becomes a more, we can allow our mind to open. So that they're, for the purpose of, of growing wisdom, we have to, in a way, engage with some of these um, more, um, perhaps disturbing feelings and states. We have to consciously engage with them, connect with them, contemplate them, so that they can begin to be transformed, and not just sort of, annihilated or disassociated from. The other, the more subtle container, if you like, is the mindfulness. 
the mindfulness itself is is really that this is why we we're growing strength in mindfulness. Say in little ways, the more mindful we are, just with the ordinary moments, with the ordinary moments of slight boredom, slight irritation, um, feelings of uh, restlessness. While we practice mindfulness, just with those ordinary moments of consciousness, we're gaining strength. So if more stronger feelings arise, feelings of fear, confusion, chaos, then the chances are that that mindfulness that we've developed, that strength of attention, will be able to sustain a connection with those states, embrace them, and hold them while we work with them. So this also, the mindfulness is also, like, if you like, an inner container. It's the discerner, it's the one that can discern, that can note, that can be with. And it's within mindfulness then, a wise, the, the wisdom naturally starts to evolve, the wise response, the intuitive response. So while we have these, we put these containers in place, if you like, these boundaries for this work, then we relax, open, uh, still connecting with the breath, with the body as an anchor, but we allow ourselves just to start to witness the flow of consciousness. And uh, this is where the teaching of not taking it too personally is quite helpful. Because at first we tend to take up the mind is ours. It's what we know ourselves as. The thoughts that that's me. And there's some thoughts I can't have and there's some thoughts I can have. There's some emotions that are unacceptable to me and some that that, are, that I like. But in this, it's more the choiceless awareness, just beginning to notice the whole spectrum, if you like, the whole gamut of uh, consciousness from the most refined and altruistic, beautiful intention and thought that we might have I'd like to work for all sentient beings right down to the last blade of grass. I'm going to be here eternally just devoting myself to the Dharma. That kind of a thought, if you ever (laughs) had that kind of a thought. (laughs) To the most awful thought, I just hate everyone. I just just hate hate me, hate everyone. I just wish I was dead, wish everyone was dead. Perhaps one can even think of a more awful thought than that. (laughs) <laughs> I won't say it. <laughs> but the, the, the most, uh, perhaps demonic impulses, violent impulses, sexual impulses, uh, fearful impulses, um, and then sort of all that's in between, just the mind wanting, wanting, wanting this, wanting that, not wanting something else, the restlessness of the mind. All of this, we, in a way, we start to gather in to our awareness. We gather, gather it in with kindly attention. And it's not, I mean, it's easy to say, I could lay that out in the last five minutes, but this is a, this is a lifetime work. It's not, or perhaps some would say lifetimes, I don't know, but however, I think one should have a long perspective on it. <laughs> not feel that we're just going to get it, you know, polished up in ten days. And this is part of one of the problems I felt we come across in these 10-day retreats is that in a way we're trying to jam so much into such a short space of time. So I said earlier um, in the, in the uh, older style in Asia and the practices in the monastery, one would have a teaching and go away and work with it for a long time. And then you bring your experiences back and contemplate them and then go away and 
and here we're sort of going through the whole thing from <laughs> well not the whole I mean the Buddhist teaching is vast but we're trying to cover a lot of ground in, in a very short space of time so if one feels one's, oh, I must get all of this and you know keep it in my mind I don't think that's uh, practical we just resonate with little bits here and there take what we can and just start working keeping it simple something works just keeping the principles getting the ideas the principles and, and having a, a very patient long term view moment by moment one of the a story uh, I was thinking about in relationship to this um, observing of mind if you like was a story from the uh, songs of Milarepa which for some reason I hadn't remembered for a long time but just popped up in my mind there was a story of Milarepa who's a great yogi Tibetan yogi that um, goes off to meditate and lives on nettles for years and uh, does all these amazing samadhi practices and he has this experience he lives in a cave and he goes off to every few weeks he goes out to eat his nettles <laughs> turns green in the process <laughs> anyway he decides it's time to eat after a few weeks of uh, his samadhi practice and goes out and gets his nettles and he comes back to his cave and there's demons in his cave trying to scare him. I mean, whether one takes that as literal demonic spirits or some manifestation of mind, I mean, who, who cares really? The fact was that it was something that was very disturbing in his mind, some, some demons coming to sort of try and knock him off balance. And his first response is, now it's quite a while since I've read this, so you have to forgive me if it's not exactly. But his first response is, Get out of here. You don't belong here. And then he thinks, no, no, that's not the right approach. I better send loving kindness. So he starts his, his meta practice. You know, may you be well, may you be free, may you be this, that and the other. And, and they still don't go. They're still taunting him and bothering him. And then he realizes, he, he comes to the realization, well, these are, these are empty. They lack no, they have no substance. While I, even while I, I'm trying to practice metta, I'm assuming that they have some permanent solid reality. And so he starts to contemplate uh, these demons as lacking in any intrinsic uh, substantiality, an appearance that when looked into carefully is, has no solidity. And it's when he reaches that point that the, the power of the demons uh, evaporates. So this... <clears throat> It is obviously quite a profound contemplation, and it's not to dismiss that the place of um, um, turning away or the place of metta, loving kindness, isn't hugely important, but essentially beginning to see that some of the mind formations themselves, some of the things that, that create so much trouble for us when we start to look at them, to remember that sometimes it's, uh, it's important just to see that ultimately they, they lack solidity. They're sort of, if you like, mind-created. Uh, but this is a tricky teaching. <laughs> and I think it came up the other day in one of our discussions, uh, very perceptively put by someone, where we can somehow get confused with the teaching of transcendence 
with the transformation. Now, this is very heady stuff, and I don't know if I can get into this, but I want to just, a few points, because I actually think it's quite a profound area, is that sometimes this teaching or looking at things as emptiness or looking with non-attachment can, can almost be, uh, has a truth in it. Obviously, it's, uh, it's really the essence of the Buddha's teaching, being able to see insubstantiality, emptiness. But sometimes we can mistake that uh, and feel a sense of uh, allowing that to justify a non-attachment, not being attached, when really um, it, it's a confusion. It can be a confusion which, where we confuse non-attachment with a, a premature sh- a closing down of the emotional body, if you like, for the fear of pain. So if something is painful, um, we can come in there with, oh, it's empty. <laughs> You know, I must be, I mustn't be attached. And in a subtle way, there's a, what we call vipuratanna, there's a desire to just, um, get rid of pain. And actually, if we do that, if we use our meditation practice enough to do that, it actually cuts off the root of compassion, because it's really ultimately the coming to terms with pain, the feeling of pain, that starts to develop or flower into the compassion. But the whole relationship to pain is important. Uh, big subject. <laughs> However, I, I want to um, just highlight that because I feel I'm not totally clear on this area myself, but just having um, worked with these teachings and seen other people work with them um, in very sincere and intense ways, <laughs> For many years, I can I have seen that there there is that confusion that can arise for the teachings of non-attachment and emptiness, <coughs> which can be used in a subtle way to, or not so subtle sometimes, to disassociate ourselves from being in life, being with the body, being with our emotions. And it's not to say that those, those teachings um, of emptiness and transcendence aren't profound and true. They're the most profound and true, really. That's why. It's not an easy area. That's why it is confusing. However, for most, for for the process of transformation, if you like, the transformation is allowing ourselves to really receive life, to work with it more with consciousness, with wisdom, with this mindfulness. So we come to these deeper insights in a more perhaps organic way, in a way where they flower naturally, uh, rather than imposing them as an ideal onto how we should be. I should be non-attached, I should be somehow have spiritual thoughts, I should be empty, I shouldn't feel what I'm feeling. When we might be full of feeling of, of all sorts of pains and sadnesses and desires and fears and anxieties. So it's like learning, I suppose, being willing to start the uh, ground level <laughs> and being patient with that being patient with that work and realizing in a 10 day retreat um, we have to be realistic that a lot of <clears throat> when we stop in this way a lot of what we're going to experience is just the residue of our life it's just the karmic momentum of what's been set in motion so a lot of it's a practice of patience just having to sit here through the mind droning on yet again 
about some something or other, or some memory f- from the past, or some pain, or some desire about the future. And sometimes we just have to watch these states over and over and over again. But we're mixing that watching with awareness, with attentiveness, with a kindliness, with patience. It's different than just obsessing or reacting in a way where we just try and push stuff away because we desire to get to a a more kind of peaceful abiding. I don't know if that makes any sense. Um, <laughs> it's always so strange trying to talk about meditation because uh, ultimately it's such a strange world. And I think sometimes there's a lot of un- unknowingness in it too. So, like what happens on a retreat is we're talking in our discussion group about everyone feeling really tired or feeling dizzy or you know the energy... Uh, being like going through molasses sometimes, and I don't, I don't understand what exactly happens on these retreats in terms of the energetic of the group and what we go through. But something happens, <laughs> and something happens. I think together. It's not that we're just individuals. Somehow we're sharing an energy uh, together, and it's a process. And I'd like to congratulate you all for making it through the third day, because traditionally, <laughs> the third day is one of the more testing days. Uh, perhaps we just start to settle and maybe at first when we arrive it's just such bliss to sit down and you know not have to do anything and then peaceful for a short while and then the old patterns come and we think oh god you know and then we we have to shift into a more accepting phase like okay this is where this vipassana allowing and here we are back with our with ourselves hopefully with more mindfulness. Ajahn Chah, used to, Ajahn Chah was very interesting because talking about compassion, compassion is not just being, about being sweet and nice and lovely. I mean, he was ruthless. He would kind of get you by the, your ego by the throat and just <laughs> throttle you if he felt that that's what was needed. And uh, he wouldn't wait for... I mean, he was a master. I think you can only really do that if you're a master. But he would say... And he said to someone, a Westerner that had come to see him, that had been sort of going to this meditation teacher and that one and this retreat and that and this group and that group. And he said, you know, he said, you're like someone with a bag of shit. He said, you go around with this bag of shit, you put it down next to you and you stop and you say, there's a terrible smell here. <laughs> said, this place, this place is no good. Look at these people, this situation. He said, it's terrible. So you pick up your bag and you go off somewhere else. You put your bag down. And then lo and behold, you say, something wrong with this place. The vibes aren't right. People aren't serious enough. Don't like it. Pick up your... Anyway, you get the message. (laughs) Somewhere along the line, one has to open the bag. Or he said things like, you know, like I was contemplating the noise, which is very irritating outside today. Someone bless them doing, trying to do the garden. We're sending bad vibes. <laughs> and I, I remembered him saying, 
Well, he'd come to London to do a, a, to the Vihara when it first started in London. And the monks were really, um, you know, I mean, it was amazing, actually, Ajahn Chah when he came to England. And he's such a, I mean, it's, in a way, it's so sad he's not, I mean, I think he is with us, actually, not on a physical level. But to meet a master that has lived their whole life, really dedicating their life, and the results of that is, is just, uh, you know, one feels, I, you know, just a tiny shadow in, in the light of what he was about. So him, when he came to England, it was very thrilling. And the monks were very excited about him coming to the Vihara, the new Vihara in London. And it was in Hampstead, in the house in Hampstead, and they set his, up the shrine room and he came in and he sat down as an evening meditation. And then as soon as the meditation started, immediately the pub across the road, the rock band started. And there was this <laughs> rock music going on through the whole meditation. And the monks were just absolutely in torture about it, you know. And at the end of it, Ajahn Chah said, well, he said, did you, did that sound, um, I've forgotten. <laughs> so, did, uh, did that sound disturb you or did you go out and disturb that sound? <laughs> and this is the whole shift that he was about. He wasn't just about trying to make the world comfortable and convenient for us. He was about just keep looking at where is the suffering, where is the clinging. You know where the clinging is because there's pain there. Keep just looking at that. Keep trusting the practice. Trusting that you can work with that. It's tangible. You can allow it not to fear the pain of suffering. Trusting in your refuges in the one that knows, the Buddha, the awareness. Trusting in your intention not to harm. To live in a, in a way that's in harmony, that's careful, that's loving trusting the, the mindfulness to do what it will do in its own way. We can't make the flowers grow. They grow in their own time, in their own way. We can water, and we can weed, we can help, but we can't go there and just pull the flower up. So you should be stronger and more beautiful than you are. It is what it is, and that's what we are. We're like plants. We're growing. It's a process. And each bit is in itself perfect. Each bit that we're with, each moment, each way it is, allows us to be with what we need to be with. So enough for tonight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.